DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's word and apply his message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Dorn. We want to welcome everybody back tonight for Acts chapter 16. In our discussion, we're going to meet Timothy and Silas tonight, who will be traveling companions with Paul. But my favorite line of the whole chapter is, The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. And um, in the revised, um, New Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition 2, it says, the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to Paul, to what was said by Paul. There was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple cloth fabric, a worshiper of God, and she was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to respond to the things spoken to Paul. So there is a response. There has to be an opening of the heart. And the Lord, it was the Lord that opened her heart. And so with an open heart, she's now able to respond to the truth of the gospel that Paul is speaking. And it reminded me of um, Revelation 3, chapter, uh, verse 20. Listen, I stand at the door knocking, says the Lord. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. So he beckons us. He knocks at the door. He's a perfect gentleman. That one's an old picture. This is contemporary. He's still doing this today. He knocks at every single heart. We need to be circumcised of the heart, and that's for all people. And if you notice, there's no handle on the door in any of the paintings because he never forces his way in. He's a perfect gentleman. He knocks. The only handle is on the inside. So you have to open the door of your own heart to receive Jesus Christ, to respond to his invitation. So is there someone in your life who you want to open the door, to open their heart, to know Jesus? Is there someone like that that you know? Because it was comforting for me to know that the Lord opened her heart. Her mom didn't open her heart, her dad didn't open her heart, her aunt, her grandma didn't know. The Lord opened her heart. And we see in John 6 that no one can come to me, Jesus, unless the Father has sent, who has sent me draws him. The Father draws us to Jesus. And the response is ours to open our heart, to open our door to him, unless drawn by the Father. So we can pray to the Father for those we love, a spouse, a neighbor, a kid, a grandkid. We can pray to the Father. We can fast, we can pray, we can give alms. Ask the Father to have the Lord open the door of their heart. So that helps us grow in our journey as we pray, as we trust God. 
as we trust the Father to do what his word says he will do. It's the Lord who opens the heart. Jesus gives boundless mercy to each and every person. And it hurts his heart when we don't respond to him. And so as we come to open our hearts to him, this consoles the heart of Jesus. That's why he came, out of love. And so in this chapter, some days um, have passed, and Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us return and visit the believers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Paul started these churches, and he wants to go back to every single city and see them again, see the believers and see how they're doing and see how the Lord's working and hear these testimonies like we heard from Steve Gard tonight. And Paul is always an encourager. So is Barnabas, son of encouragement. Encourage one another. Build up the body of Christ. Except when we see they have a little disagreement. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark. And Paul says, uh-uh. He went with us last time to Pamphylia. And eh, not again. But later, they will reconcile. They will make up. But this is going to split the gospel two different directions with two strong leaders. Barnabas is strong. Joseph, the son of encouragement. Paul is strong on his own. And they can take younger men with them and mentor them to be disciples. So the body of Christ is going in two directions, which is wonderful. And they will reconcile and make peace. Peter loves John Mark. He says in 1 Peter 5, your sister church in Babylon, which is a code word for Rome at the time, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Peter thinks of him as a son, and St. Jerome, who is an early church father who translated the Septuagint from Greek into the Latin Vulgate, wrote a book called On Illustrious Men, and he speaks of Mark in his book in chapter 8. He says, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter wrote a short gospel at the request of the brothers in Rome, embodying what he had heard Peter tell. So Mark is the one who records Peter's stories, and that's the gospel of Mark. Peter was a fisherman, uneducated. He probably couldn't write. He needed a scribe, and John Mark would be that man because he's wealthy. His mother owned the upper room. He had the linen. He was probably the guy walking with the water jar in John's gospel when Jesus said, follow the one you see with the water jar to pass over to the upper room. Mark had probably gone to get water for his mother. When Peter had heard this, he approved it and published it to the churches. Mark wrote it down. Peter approved it and read it by his authority. So Peter approved it. And then Mark took that gospel that he wrote for Peter, and he went to Egypt, and he preached Christ in Alexandria, Egypt, forming a church so admirable in doctrine and continence of living, lived a very holy life, that he constrained all the followers of Christ to his example. So that's John Mark later in life. Eusebius, a Roman historian, also tells us of Mark, that Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all the things he remembered Peter to say. And then Philo says that most learned of the Jews, seeing the first church at Alexandria, Egypt, was Jewish in a degree. He wrote a book on the manner of life and something credible to his nation, telling how, as Luke says, the believers had all things in common as at Jerusalem. This is Mark's church in Alexandria. So Mark dies under the, um, in the eighth year of Emperor Nero, and he's buried in Alexandria. Pagans attack him while he's saying mass. He wrote a beautiful liturgy, his own liturgy, according to uh, Mark's liturgy. He was beaten, dragged through the streets, thrown into prison, where Jesus appeared to him, fortifying him for his forthcoming suffering. The next day, he was dragged down the streets with a rope around his neck, and he was dragged to death. 
And on his lips, his final words, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So Paul now is going to choose Silas to continue on. He'll get paired with Silas right now. And the believers commend him by the grace of the Lord. They go to Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches, building them up, edifying them. Paul is very good at that. We'll see Silas in chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18 of Acts, and we'll see him a few more places known as Silvanus. That is Silas in Greek and Latin is the same um, derivative called Silvanus. So when you see Silvanus, that's also Silas. Silas turns out to be the first bishop of Corinth, and he also is martyred for the faith. He's in the Roman Martyrology. His feast day is July 13th. That's our wedding anniversary, Steve, so don't forget. Silas's feast day is our anniversary. And um, he was full of the grace of God, readily fulfilled the office of preaching, glorified Christ in his sufferings, and was also martyred for the faith. Now, Paul says of him and Timothy in 2 Corinthians 1, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes or no, but in him it was always yes, yes, yes for Jesus Christ. His final greeting, uh, Peter says, through Silvanus, who I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter. So his first letter of Peter is written by Silvanus. John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, according to Peter. Silvanus records his first letter because Peter probably couldn't write and he was his scribe. Paul went on then to Derby and Lystra, and there he met a disciple named Timothy. And Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father is Greek. I am a rem- I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, he says in, in a letter that he writes him later. A faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure it lives in you. So a few chapters back, we had Rhoda, and now we have Eunice! <laughs> Remember her? love Eunice. If we would have had a daughter, I would have named her Eunice. (laughs) Young Timothy and grandmother Lois. He had a, a, a believing grandma and a believing mother, and this is what would build the faith in Timothy. Rembrandt paints Timothy with his grandmother Lois. And I just want to encourage all of you in here who are grandparents, what an important role that really can be in your grandkids' life, praying for your grandchildren and uh, reading to them and telling them about Jesus and stories from your life and ways you met the Lord and went deeper with the Lord, praying together. This is a huge, huge witness that grandparents can do. I've had kids tell me like, oh, I know from my grandma. Oh, my grandpa taught me the faith. We'd go fishing and he'd tell me about Jesus. So this is an important, I encourage you if you're a grandparent or a parent of that important role to catechize our kids. He, Timothy, was well spoken of by the fellow believers in Lystrum and Iconium. Are you well spoke of by people at your church? Because they can smell a rat quicker than anyone I know. And Timothy was very well spoken of by the other believers. And I say that because we went home from Bible study last week, last Thursday night. It was about 10 o'clock by the time we got home. And Johnny was crying because he didn't get any dinner. And it was 10 o'clock. And he said, the boys went to Raising Cane's without me. And they didn't buy me anything. And they came home. And he didn't have any dinner. And 
I went ballistic. I raised Kane at that point. <laughs> and I said, why did I do this? And then, P and then Steve started in, and he got really mad at him for doing this to Johnny. And then Peter said, how was Bible study? <laughs> Because they smell a rat. Like, it was fine. You still should feed your brother dinner. So, Timothy was very well spoken of. Christians need to walk the walk and talk the talk, right? Now, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and had him circumcised. Because there were Jews in these places that knew that his father was a Greek. Now, wait a minute. We spent all last week, that whole chapter, saying they didn't have to get circumcised anymore. And then the very next chapter, Paul is circumcising Timothy. What is going on? The first council said no circumcision needed. So now they're going to deliver the observance, the decisions, that no circumcision was needed. And Paul says, wait a minute, let me circumcise you first. <laughs> What's going on? Did you figure that out in your small groups? Paul's in a big timeout. Timothy's like, wait a minute, are you sure? I thought we were... But look at the incredible witness of Timothy. No longer do they need circumcision, yet Timothy, a young man in the prime of his life, is willing to go under the knife at the hand of St. Paul for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy is officially sold out for Jesus. And Paul explains to the Corinthians later what this means, why they might have done this. Though Paul says, though I'm free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, as to win those who are under the law. And to those who, have, who are not having the law, I became like one of them, not having the law, though I am free under God's law, I'm not free under Christ's law. He still has to follow the moral law of Jesus Christ. But to win as many as he can, to the weak, I become weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. And I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in his blessings. So, Timothy, we're going into Gentile territory. They know your father's Greek. The Greeks aren't going to care, but the Jews that are there, we're going to talk to the Jews too, and they are going to care, and this might be a hindrance to them. And this law is brand new. And, and, you know, we had Roe versus Wade 40 years ago, and they said abortion is legal. Do you agree with that law? <laughs> it doesn't mean that these people instantly agreed with the law of circumcision. And so if it's going to be a hindrance, if it's going to make people not listen to us, shut us down, not hear the gospel, the saving message of our Lord Jesus Christ, then let's circumcise you. And Timothy says, yeah, I'm all in. I have become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. Get out of God's way and let the gospel do the speaking. We can't be a hindrance. We have to let God's word speak. Greek men did not circumcise. So how did Timothy's own father feel about this? He didn't have his son circumcised. His mother and grandmother were Jewish, but they did not have him enter the covenant of Abraham on the eighth day. Maybe the father said, absolutely not. No son of mine will be circumcised. We don't know why he's not circumcised. But the mother and grandmother still catechized him in the faith. He knew the God of Israel. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He had him circumcised because of the Jews, not the Gentiles, because of the Jews that were in those places. So they would hear him and listen to him and know he was in the covenant of Abraham. So the churches were strengthened and they grew and their faith increased daily. 
So Paul has taken Timothy as his own spiritual son. It was always the job of the Jewish father to circumcise his son, and he's circumcising Timothy. And this will be a beloved son to him. For the sake of the gospel and the multicultural nations they will be speaking to, no hindrance. To the Gentiles, Timothy would be identified as a Gentile because of his Greek heritage. To the Jews, he would be identified as a circumcised Jew. No stumbling block to the gospel. Timothy's born in Galatia in Asia Minor, Jewish mother, Greek father, baptized and ordained by St. Paul. The young Galatian became his missionary and his most beloved spiritual son. Paul left him a priceless heritage as his spiritual father, two beautiful letters, one and two Timothy. And he will be um, made the bishop of Ephesus eventually by St. Paul. He'll instruct elders and deacons there. And those guidelines were very pastoral, those letters that Paul wrote him. Uh, he'll be in a big city, Ephesus, for 15 years as bishop, and he will be martyred there 30 years after Paul's death because he will have to denounce the worship of the goddess Diana, which was huge in Ephesus. The statue of Diana, the huntress, um, as you recall, the Greeks ruled there first, Alexander the Great, and then Rome came over and conquered Greece, and so the Greek gods all got switched to Roman names. So it was Artemis in the Greek and Diana in the Roman, and she was the goddess of the entire city. In fact, there was a temple to Diana or Artemis, and it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had been there for over 700 years. So in comparison to the Jewish temple, that was a new kid on the block. Hey, our temple's been here for 700 years, and we worship Diana, goddess of our city, Ephesus. And the imperial families would go worship sacrifice there to Diana. And um, we have evidence of that in history, in reliefs and museums. In Roman mythology, Diana was the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of the moon, of birthing animals, woodland animals, and having the control to talk and care for animals. Diana was known to be the virgin goddess of childbirth and women. And she was one of the three main goddesses, Diana, Minerva, and Vesta, who swore never, ever, ever, ever to marry. And so as a result, this is a very feminist, extremely feminist society, Ephesus is. A woman god who will never marry, who is in charge of virgin childbirth, <laughs> just very um, independent, um, and, and everyone worshiped Diana. Now, when Timothy um, is killed, when he's martyred, it is a pagan procession of idols that he's trying to stop. It's, it's Diana worship that he's trying to halt, and he's martyred, and his body's taken off to Constantinople. But Paul writes a letter later to Timothy with pastoral concerns. And we have to know what type of society this was, because when we read these at Mass, we think, gosh, Paul's kind of hard on women, isn't he? But when you know about what Ephesus was like and the cult of Diana, he says in his letter to Timothy, Timothy's the bishop of Ephesus, and Paul's writing him a letter. No one's ever supposed to see this letter, right? It's his mail. And we get to read it now. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women there to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first 
then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing. Remember, these were godless these were women who didn't want any children. They wanted to remain childless. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue their faith in love and holiness and propriety. So Paul often gets misunderstood because he's taken out of historical context. That was a very feministic society in Ephesus. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, fan the flame of God through which I'm laying my hands on you. The Spirit of God does not make us timid, doesn't make us cowards, Timothy. Stand up against these women. It gives us power, love, self-discipline. Don't be ashamed of your testimony about the Lord or me. And rather, join me in the suffering for the gospel and the power of God. So Timothy has a hard job in Ephesus, and today there is still a branch that worships Diana, a branch of Wicca, named for the goddess Diana, and she's characterized by an exclusive focus on the feminine aspect of the divine, and her name is used in an energy chant, third name in Wiccan Diana. Now, the Los Angeles Times reported in November of 2011, just two years ago, that the Air Force Academy adapt, uh, adapts to pagans, druids, witches, and Wiccans. Reporting from Colorado Springs, in the still of the cold November evening, a small gathering of pagans led by two witches begins participation for the coming winter solstice. But these are not just any pagans. These are not just any setting. This is the future officers of the United States Air Force practicing their faith in the basement of the Air Force Academy Cadet Chapel. And then tax dollars paid $80,000 for a new Wicca worship center at the Air Force base, uh, the, the school in Colorado Springs. So, and this Cadet Johnson says, people are very understanding. We have officers in charge of us who are very understanding. The chaplains are very understanding. It's very easy to be a pagan in the United States Air Force Academy. So, Diana, I'm saying this because Diana is still being worshipped today. And she was very, very strongly worshipped in Ephesus at the time of Timothy. Timothy and Titus have the feast day on the same day, January 26th. And it says, living in the colic that day at Mass, living justly and devoutly in this present age, we, we merit to reach our heavenly homeland. So this was um, a rough time they lived in, the Roman gods, the Greek gods. Um, but God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather of power, love, and self-control. So Paul and Timothy and Silas continue on through the region of um Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they're praying, they're discerning, they're listening to the Lord. Um, they passed those cities. And then when they had come opposite Mysia, they attempt to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, which Paul wants you to know is the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, they weren't allowed to pass Mysia, so they went down to Troyas. That would be the city of Troy. You remember that from Greek mythology, Greek history. They had come opposite Mysia. Now, Paul has a dream, and it's a vision in the night. He stands there, and a man from Macedonia pleads with him, come, come over to us in Macedonia. So they go all the way over to the region of Macedonia immediately. They are being convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit that they are to go to Macedonia and proclaim the good news. And so they pass all those cities from there to Philippi. 
They're going to end up in Philippi in the region of Macedonia. They're going to stay in the city of Philippi for some days. So here's Macedonia, and Philippi is a beautiful city, a Roman colony in, in this district, and founded in the 4th century before Christ after the battle of Philippi in 42 BC, veterans of the Roman legions settled there. So soldiers uh, settled in Philippi. It, be, it was a Roman colony. It had a road. You, we hear that all roads lead to Rome. They had great road systems. Philippi was one of the cities that had a 493 mile long road to Rome through it. So it gave it high status on the Roman provinces. And this is where Paul would have preached with Timothy and Silas. In the square there, there was a beautiful amphitheater. And here's the prison, the actual prison where he and Silas were jailed. And uh, we'll read about that in a few more verses here. And this is where the conversion of Lydia happened, at the river. This city is so pagan and so Roman that there's not even a Jewish synagogue here. Because Paul always went to the synagogue first and preached to the Jews first. And then the Gentiles, there's no, there's no synagogue here. So he sees a group of women gathered at the river on Shabbat, on the morning of the Sabbath. And he went outside the gate by the river. And it was supposed there to be a place of prayer where these women would gather. And he sits down with the women and speaks with them. And a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, a worshiper of God. She's not Jewish, but she is worshiping the one true God of Israel. And she was listening to Paul. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer of purple cloth. There's where Thyatira is, in the middle of that Asian province. And I'll tell you a little bit about Thyatira. It's listed in the revelation of um, St. Paul has a revelation, and he writes to seven churches. And one of the churches he writes to is Thyatira. And so it's one of those seven churches listed in Revelation. And here's what he says to the church at Thyatira. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. And so Thyatira is a very pagan district. And he says Jezebel is there, the spirit of Jezebel. And we know from the Old Testament that Jezebel was the most evil woman in the book of Kings, one and two kings. She's the wife of Ahab. She's a Phoenician princess who is evil to the core. And she was a wicked queen and a prophetess for the false god Baal. She was always chasing Elijah. Um, she had 400 prophets around her table, prophets of Baal that, that uh, Elijah slayed. But Baal was the god of prosperity, the god of harvest, the god of fertility, the god of sex. And she was a very evil evil woman. They offered child sacrifices, very common. She had witchcraft that she would perform. And so in that area of Thyatira, 
I don't think Lydia wants to stay there. And so she's traveled from Thyatira to Philippi, and she is now a worshiper of God. So she's drawn to the Jewish faith, but she has not converted yet. But when the Greeks had control of this region, that whole region where she's from was called Lydia. And her name is Lydia, and she is a purple cloth merchant. Now, to be a purple cloth merchant, the, when that area was controlled by Greece, and the Greek mythology had a story about Hercules, that you might remember. Hercules um, is credited with founding one of the classical world's largest chemical industries, and that is the chemical chain for Tyrian purple dye. And here's the 3D model of it. It is said that Hercules was walking along the seashore with his beautiful nymph from Tyre when his dog ran and got a seashell in its mouth, and you dog owners can picture this, and he's chewing up this snail, and he looks up at Hercules, and his whole mouth is covered with the most beautiful purple color you could imagine. And the nymph that Hercules is with says, make me a gown of that purple color, and I shall let you court me. And so he does. He produces the purple dye. That is a Greek mythology, but there were many, many, many beautiful colors of purple dyes that would come from these snails in the Mediterranean Sea. And to be a purple dye merchant meant you were in big bucks. Ty Tyrian purple was known as royal purple, imperial purple, and it was a reddish purple natural dye secreted by the sea snails called the murex. And Jezebel was a Phoenician princess from this area. I'm sure she had gowns of purple. The Phoenicians first used this dye as early as 1570 BC. And the dye was prized in antiquity because of its beautiful color and it didn't fade. If you went out in the sunlight, it got even more brilliant when it was oxidized. And so it took 1,200 snails to produce fewer than two grams of the dye. And Theopompus, the historian, said that purple for dyes fetched its weight in silver. So here's the more pure Tyrian purple. It's more of a reddish purple, 1.4 grams of the dye just for the trim of a single garment. So if you had half of a two-liter bottle in U.S. dollars today, it would be about $3 million for a half a bottle of dye, one liter. So we can see that Lydia has bank. <laughs> and to raise these snails, you could milk the snails or you could crush them. If you milk them, it looks like this, where you, it's very labor-intensive, but you milk them out and you don't kill the snail. But if you crush them, then you have to boil them with lead and tin for 10 days with salt. And the, the, the odor it gave off was quite um, pungent, but it would release bromine. And bromide is the chemical responsible for the purple. And then they dip the fabric in and make the most beautiful purple. And it was very expensive, difficult to produce, labor-intensive, gorgeous, though. So all the social elite wanted this color. And so Lydia is a purple garment merchant. That means she's rich. And she's meeting Paul. Now, the Byzantine emperors made a law saying only the emperors could wear this purple color. And uh, if you were born in purple, you were born into an emperor's family. Also, the birthing room for the royal highness who was having the baby was made of this purple stone out of the snail shells, purple marble, very rare. Constantine has St. Helena's um, sarcophagus made of the purple, the periphery red marble. It's very rare. And his daughter, Constantina, these are in the Vatican Museum, and his own sarcophagus and his bust is made of that. 
Also, Diana, or Artemis, had a twin brother named Apollo, and there's a statue of him in the red porphyry, very expensive. Then they take the Chinese silk, mix it with the mosque of the purple, and make the most beautiful fabrics known to man. And in 500 BC, the Tyrian purple, Rome took over and said only emperors could wear the purple color or death. Anyone else caught wearing it would be killed. But in 300 BC, they allowed the Roman senators to barely trim the sash on their garment, their senatorial garments, with the purple color. So sometimes you see the Tyrian purple on the senators' garments. You could tell how important someone was by how much of the purple was on their um, clothing. So Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, is all in purple when we see him pictured. The great irony of this, Jesus had nothing, nowhere to lay his head, no material possessions. But the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole cohort around him, stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him. That would have been this beautiful purple fabric worth major amount of money. After they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on. So they're mocking him and making fun of him. And by the 5th century, there were mosaics of Jesus in purple as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, here trampling the devil with one foot and the Roman lion with the other foot. And his scripture is open to, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So back to Lydia, the purple clothing, clothing merchant. She is at the river, and they're worshiping. She's a worshiper of God. It's Sabbath. They're praying by the river. She's a purple cloth dealer. And the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what Paul was saying. And then she and her whole household said yes, yes, yes to the Lord. They wanted to be baptized. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home tonight. She's rich enough to have a home as a woman. And she prevailed upon us and convinced them to stay with her. She is St. Lydia of Philippi, or of Thyrea, Tyra, and she had the spiritual gifts of hospitality, which was highly valued in the ancient world, to open her home, to make them feel welcome and warm and very generous. And it's quite providential that God would bring Paul and she together because she had a lot of money and Paul needed money to finance his missionary trips. So this will be good for everybody. The woman at the well also opened her heart and was the first convert to Samaria. She's named St. Fotina. The woman at the river opened her heart, and she goes on to be the first convert to Europe, and she is named St. Lydia. You can go to Philippi today, and at that same river, there's a baptistry built there. You can sit and pray. This is where she and her household were baptized by Paul. But there's a few things, just those short verses, but a few things we can learn from Lydia. Cultivating a devotion to the Lord like Lydia did. Number one, it's important to meet with believers. It's important to fellowship like we do here, to go and study, like to not compartmentalize our faith like Steve Gard was talking about. It's not just for work or for this or for that, but be with believers. And uh, we can look at Hebrews 10.25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Number two, she put the Lord first, nothing before him. She moved away from her homeland, from all the paganism there. She became a God worshiper. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Also, giving of ourselves gladly to hospitality and service of others. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, Paul will tell the Romans. He learned that from Lydia. By being a bold, fearless Christian witness in our workplace or business place, Lydia was a highly successful businesswoman. And you can be sure she told her workers, her snail workers, about the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And then number five, doing all we can to further the work of the church and build one another up, encourage one another, infirm one another, build communities of support. And, like Lydia will do with Paul, give sacrificially, whatever that means for each of us. It'll be different for each person, but just to write a check that doesn't hurt, write till it kind of, are you sure we should give that much? Yeah, we should give that much. For Macedonia and Archaea, we're pleased to make a contribution for the Lord among the Lord's people in Jerusalem to spread the faith. So we can learn a lot from this female purple cloth merchant, Lydia. Now, they're going on, they're moving to the place of prayer again, which would be out by the river, and they meet a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she was brought by her owners, and she would make a great deal of money by fortune-telling, and they would sell her services. And while she followed Paul, she kept crying out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She's advertising for Paul and she keeps yelling it and yelling it. And he's trying to preach and he's like, he's annoyed. He gets annoyed with her. She kept doing it for many days. And Paul, very much annoyed, turned to her and said to the spirit within you, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ. Always, in the name of Jesus Christ, there is no other name. He orders her in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when the owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they were very angry. They seized Paul and Silas. They drug them to the marketplace before the authorities. They had them beaten. They had the magistrates. They said they're disturbing the city. They are Jews. They're advocating customs that aren't lawful for us Romans to adopt or observe. And so they're stripped, they're beaten with rods, they're flogged severely, they're thrown into prison, and they're ordered by the jailer to to keep them secure. Here's the prison they were in, in Philippi. It's still there, it's preserved. The traditional site where they were imprisoned and following the instructions, they were locked and fastened into stocks in their feet. You can't move when your feet are in stocks. What do they do? It's midnight, and they are singing and praising the Lord. And the other prisoners are listening, and the guards are listening. And Paul will be all things to all people. Hey, you're a prisoner? I'm one too. So let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he can do for you. You know, he had a captive audience there. Um, Get it? Yeah. (laughs) Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. So here you are with your feet in stocks, your hands in chains, and stones are falling and everything's caving in. There immediately all the doors are opened and everyone's chains are unfastened. That's a miracle, to have your chains unfastened, your stocks unfastened. And the jailer woke up and he saw the prison doors wide open. He knew he was going to be killed for letting his prisoners escape, so he takes his own sword and he's going to kill himself 
because his prisoners had escaped. And Paul shouted in a loud voice, no, 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 don't harm yourself. We're all here. It's okay. And then Paul preaches the gospel to the jailer. Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he could do for you in the middle of an earthquake when he could be running free. And he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He opened his heart like Lydia had done. And he brought them outside and he said, what, sir, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your whole household. So the response is to believe. You have to believe. Jesus has given all of us a free gift, but we have to respond. We have to open our heart and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Abraham believed and the Lord credited to him as righteousness before he was circumcised in he believed first. What do you have to do to believe the Lord? Believe his word. The word is the living word of Jesus Christ. Trust and obey his word. Know his word. I commend you to be here studying his word so you know it, so you can trust it, stand on it, and obey it. Because Satan would love nothing more than to undermine the word of God. He always does. It's his oldest tactic. He wants us to lose confidence in God's word. Uh, last night, there was a show on the History Channel called Bible Secrets Revealed, and it's an agnostic consulting producer, Dr. Robert Cargill from Iowa, he want, and he says, quote, we wanted the scholarship itself to be controversial based upon the facts that we've studied in our, and we found in our studies, and the trailer said verbatim, this series will challenge everything we think, everything we know, and everything we believe about the Bible. Is it really the inspired word of God? Bum, bum, bum. And I'm like, and, and so like we're here tonight and our kids are home watching that. And, and it undermines God's word and it undermines our confidence in God's word. It's Satan's oldest trick. Did God really say that? You really still believe the Bible people? Really? That is what Satan wants to do. Make us doubt God's word. Did God really say that? If you need an idea for Christmas gifts, <laughs> I was just searching, you know, Satan speaking into to Eve's ear, and these are for sale now. You can buy them. They're called ear cuffs, and that is a little snake speaking right into the woman's ear. They spoke to the word, uh, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and they were all in the house. That same hour, they washed their wounds. The entire family was baptized without delay. He bought them up into the house. He gave them food. The entire household rejoiced. They had all become believers. And I'll end it with this. When they're letting Paul out of prison, Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Did you not know I am a Roman citizen? So he's going to play the Roman citizenship card, and he's going to do it a lot, as we'll see down the road. But he's going to claim his Roman citizenship because I'll be a Roman citizenship if I have to be a Roman citizenship to spread the gospel because the Roman citizenship is going to take him all the way to Rome and give him a trial before Caesar. So he'll do whatever he has to do to advance the gospel. He will appeal to his Roman citizenship if he has to. But he knows, as he told the Philippians in his last uh, instruction to them in Philippians 3, that destiny is destruction, God is their stomach, their glory is in shame, their minds on earthly things, but 
our fellowship, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship isn't here in Philippi. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's where ours is too. Our citizenship is not in Omaha, Nebraska, USA. Our citizenship is in heaven. We want to open our hearts and respond to his gift. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that gospel. We thank you for the way you open hearts. Father, draw all hearts unto your Son, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the gateway back to you, so we can be in eternal happiness in our heavenly home where our only citizenship truly lies. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting, of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, go to seekingtruth.net. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.